This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello and welcome to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where I look at all of our favorite horror films from the classic, the camp, to the cringe, through the lens of disability. I'm your host, Nicole, and I am thrilled to have you here. So, what is on the examination table for this episode? The films of Jordan Peele, 2017's Get Out, and 2019's Us. Now, I know what you might be thinking. Nicole, these films have been discussed, dissected, discoursed a thousand different ways already. And what could you possibly have to add to the conversation? And this is a very fair question. To get to the quick of it, both films have disabled characters and their disabilities do play an important role in the structures of the respective stories. Peel uses characters' identities to comment on how those identities and the person uh, are valued by others and by society as a whole. And I wanted to spend a little bit of time here exploring what Peel brings to the table in terms of disability. So, let's get into it, and let's start with 2017's Get Out. You got your toothbrush? Check. Do you have your deodorant? Check. Do you have your cozy clothes? Got that. What? Do they know I'm black? Should they? You might wanna, you know? Mom and Dad, my black boyfriend will be coming up this weekend. I just don't want you to be shocked, but he's... Black man. <laughs> I ain't never seen you like this before, bruh. Meeting families, taking road trips. Don't come back all bougie, man. Come back, get your damn pants up to your damn stomach. <laughs> so you guys coming up from the city? Yeah, we're just heading up for the weekend. Can I see your license, please? He wasn't driving. I didn't ask who was driving. I asked to see his ID. Call me Dean and you're hungry, my man. So how long has this been going on, this, this thing? <laughs> we hired Georgina and Walter to help care for my parents. When they died, I couldn't bear to let them go. Do you smoke in front of my daughter? I'm gonna quit. She'd take care of that for you. How? Hypnosis. I'm good, actually. Are you ready for this? How bad can it be? So look, I go do my research. Apparently, a whole bunch of brothers been missing in this suburb. But it's cool. Bro, how are you not scared of this, man? Couldn't see no brother around here. Chris was just telling me how he felt much more comfortable with my being here. Get out. Sorry, man. Okay. Get out! Yo! <laughs> Rose, we gotta go. Is everything okay? Rose, the keys. Just get the keys. I don't know where they are. Rose! Sink into the floor. Wait, 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 wait. Sink. Mom, it's a terrible thing to waste. Terrible thing to waste.
too many white people, I get nervous. <laughs> no. No. Right. So our plot synopsis is as follows. Chris Washington is a black photographer from Brooklyn, New York, preparing for a weekend visit to upstate New York to meet the family of his white girlfriend, Rose Armitage. Hesitant, he asks Rose if her family knows about their interracial relationship. She answers no, but she assures him that they are not racist. They would have voted for Obama for their term if they could. And all of that. They have a minor accident on the way, hitting a deer. An officer shows up, and when he asks to see Chris's ID, Rose stops him and asks why, as Chris was only a passenger. This puts an end to the exchange with the officer, and Chris never has to show his ID, and they are back on the road to the Armitage estate. While there, Rose's brother Jeremy and their parents, neurosurgeon Dean and hypnotherapist Missy, make disconcerting comments about black people, and Chris witnesses strange behavior from the estate's black housekeeper Georgina and groundskeeper Walter. When Chris is unable to sleep, Missy pressures him into a hypnotherapy session to cure his smoking addiction. While in his trance, he confesses that his mother was killed in a hit-and-run when he was a child and that he feels responsible for her death as he waited too long to call for help. He then sinks into a void. Missy calls the sunken place. The next morning, he assumes that the encounter was a dream until Walter acknowledges their brief encounter the night before. However, he is pleased to discover that the hypnosis was a success as he no longer has a desire to smoke. Georgina unplugs his phone accidentally, draining its battery, and after she and Chris have a bit of a confrontation over the incident, she has a bizarre episode where she smiles and cries at the same time while constantly repeating the word no and uh, eventually exits the room, leaving Chris... Uh, pretty baffled. Dozens of wealthy people arrive at the Armitage's annual get-together and express admiration for Chris's physique and for prominent black figures like Tiger Woods. Jim Hudson, an art dealer who has gone blind due to a progressive genetic disorder, takes a particular interest in Chris's photography skills. Chris meets another black man, Logan King, who behaves strangely and is married to a much older white woman. Chris relays the information to his friend, TSA officer Rod Williams. Chris tries to uh, photograph Logan inconspicuously, but when this flash goes off on his phone, Logan becomes hysterical, shouting at Chris to get out. The others restrain him, and Dean later claims that Logan had an epileptic seizure. Away from the party, Chris convinces Rose they should leave. Meanwhile, Dean holds an auction 
with a photo of Chris, which Jim wins. Rod recognizes Logan because Chris had sent a photo uh, to him uh, as Andre Hayworth, a missing man from Brooklyn. Suspecting a conspiracy, Rod goes to the police, but they don't believe him. While Chris packs to leave, he finds photos of Rose in prior relationships with several black partners, including Walter and Georgina, contradicting, contradicting her earlier claim that Chris was the first black person that she stated. He tries to leave the house, but Rose and her family block him. Chris attacks Jeremy, but Missy uses a trigger that she implanted during the hypnosis session, and this knocks him out. Chris awakens strapped to a chair in the basement. In a video presentation, Rose's grandfather, Roman, explains that the family transplants their brains into other bodies, granting them a preferred physical uh, set of characteristics and a twisted form of immortality. In a later video, uh, Jim tells Chris that the host's consciousness remains in the sunken place, conscious but powerless. Although the Armitages target mainly black people, uh, Jim explains that he doesn't care about Chris's race. He only wants his eyesight. Missy performs hypnosis, seemingly knocking Chris out again. When Jeremy comes to fetch Chris for the surgery, having uh, blocked out the hypnosis trigger by plugging his ears with cotton uh, from the stuffing of the chair, uh, Chris bludgeons Jeremy unconscious. He impales Dean with antlers of a deer mount, causing Dean to knock over a candle and set fire to the operating room with a pre-op Jim inside. Chris kills Missy, but is attacked by Jeremy as he heads towards the door. He overpowers and kills Jeremy before leaving in his car, but hits Georgina. Compelled by guilt from his mother's death and realizing Georgina is another victim, he carries her into the car, but she awakens and, possessed by Rose's grandmother, Marianne, attacks him. And in the ensuing struggle, the car crashes and Georgina is killed. Rose apprehends Chris with Walter, who is possessed by Roman. Chris uses, uses the flash on his phone to neutralize Roman, allowing Walter to regain, to regain some control of his body. Walter takes Rose's rifle and shoots her in the stomach before shooting himself. Chris begins to strangle Rose, but she smiles at him, and he finds himself unable to kill her. Police sirens approach, and Rose cries out for help, but the driver is revealed to be Rod, who drives away with Chris and Rose is left bleeding in the road. So obviously, a bulk of what I want to talk about focuses on the Jim Hudson of it all, our blind art dealer. He is one of the party guests that seems to have, and I'm using air quotes here, a normal conversation with Chris in their first interaction. They have a connection through art, and Jim mentions being familiar with Chris's work. He shares how losing his sight has changed his relationship with this part of his life, and, uh, you know, this part of his life that has really held 
and immense value. He talks about wanting uh, at one point to be a photographer himself doing some wildlife and nature photography but realized that you know that wasn't really in his skill set so became an art dealer. Obviously someone that is really interested and passionate about art. And so he also then goes on to explain how he continues to do his work with the assistance of his assistant that describes the, uh, you know, the photographs and the artwork in really vivid detail. It's probably one of my favorite scenes in the film, I think for obvious reasons, but what really strikes me is that they are completely separate from anyone in the group. We never see Jim kind of interacting with other party guests, um, except for the shot of him when he wins the auction a couple of scenes later. They're separate and they're having this one-on-one. -on -one. It's a very easy conversation. They haven't met, but they kind of have this instant connection over art. And you know, Chris is really attentive and listening to Jim kind of explain what he does and Chris recognizes him right away. I kind of like that moment where, you know, Jim is like, yeah, Chris, I know who you are. I'm really impressed by your work. And Chris is like, oh, you're Jim Hudson. You have this gallery. So they have this really easy rapport. And at the very top of the conversation, before they even get into any of that, Jim makes a comment about how, you know, all of the other party guests are ignorant. They don't understand what real life is like. And I think this is, again, really cementing this connection between them. They're separate from everyone else in the party. There's some people, uh, I think, playing a game of uh, maybe badminton or something um, just in the foreground of the shot. But, you know, they're separate from everyone. And I think this establishes them as both kind of outsiders of the group. I am also really struck by how frank and plainly Jim talks about his journey of losing his sight and how it's impacted his work and his passion in life of art. It's not something that he's wanted to give up and so he's found ways to continue his work. Uh, we do, as Chris is kind of approaching where Jim is before they start off the conversation, we do see a gentleman there, and I'm assuming that's his assistant as well, um, or perhaps uh, an aide of some kind. But it's a really frank conversation, and I think to me, again, it just cements that they have this instant rapport and connection is not really feeling connected to anyone else at the party. You know, Jim for having a disability and, you know, we learn more, I think, having some other issues with, um, I guess, some of the overall ideals of everyone else. And then, you know, Chris 
because of his race. Now, I do want to take a moment and go back to uh, talking about how Jim describes and talks about his disability because he uses some pretty interesting language. Jim is not someone that is really kind of approaching his disability with any positivity. He makes some pretty kind of self-depreciating or self-effacing jokes. When he and Chris first start talking, he, you know, says, I, I totally get the irony of the fact that I am a blind art dealer. And then goes on to further describe his experience with a progressive disability as you know, going from developing pictures in a dark room to waking up in the dark. This is someone that's really obviously struggling with his disability and with his blindness. And I think part of it is obviously, again, connected to how it's impacted his ability to engage with art. And I appreciate that that's kind of part of how he's vocalizing it. He isn't, uh, you know, doing something that I think a lot of individuals with disabilities have to do, and that is put a sheen of positivity on everything. Like, yeah, everything is fine. Life is hard, but I just get through it with a smile. And that's not Jim's MO. He's sad. He's kind of bitter about his station. And this is going to come more into play when I talk about kind of his final scene towards the end. But it just really struck me as being something that is not necessarily always part of the portrayal of disability is that I think there's often this inclination of we need to make the uh, experience seem not as daunting and it is a struggle and everyone's journey with disability is going to be different again going back to what I say quite frequently which is disability is not a monolith and everyone's uh, experience is going to be vastly vastly different and so I appreciate that we're getting a pretty unique look into one person's journey with their disability we do get the shot of Jim winning the auction for Chris and at that point we don't necessarily understand all of what's going on um, we just know it's not good and so our next scene, kind of a substantial scene with Jim, is at the end, or his end, rather, where he's explaining the procedure to Chris. And apparently this is done because there's some kind of documentation where they've noted that the person uh, that's brain is going to be transplanted into uh, the body, you know, having them explain the procedure to the individual has somehow been beneficial to success rates. But anyway, he 
is talking through the procedure that his brain is going to be transplanted into Chris's body and that Chris is going to be a passenger, essentially forever locked into the sunken place that Missy had put him in. And he would have some form of consciousness because there's a sliver of the nervous system that needs to stay intact so that, I guess, you know, limbs, etc., and other parts of the nervous system can continue to function um, as normal, but that it would only be a sliver of consciousness. But what stands out to me in this bit is, again, we get a more pointed uh, conversation about how Jim doesn't align with the theologies of this group. Chris asked him why black people, why are they targeting individuals of a certain race? And Jim kind of laughs it off and is like, well, that's their thing. I don't really care about your race. I don't care what color you are. I just want your eyes. What I want is something more profound and, and deeper. I want to, I want to reclaim this artistic part of me I felt I've lost through my disability. More explicitly, he tells Chris not to put him or lump him into the same category as these other individuals because what he's doing has a, a I guess, a grander purpose of some sort for him. And this gets to really what I, I, I want to, to drive home here. Jim has essentially weaponized his experience as someone with a disability, weaponized his struggle as someone with a disability against someone else. He's ranked his value as being that of higher. So while he wants to say, you know, I'm not, I'm not a racist. Don't, don't call me that. He's still using a, a system, an organization that perpetuates that racism that is founded on that to reach his end goal. Now, this is obviously, I think, uh, some really pointed commentary by Peel, and I think that the commentary is pointed by uh, a piece that I'm going to link in the show notes here. The piece is called Appropriation in a Disability Community. We are our own worst enemy, and it was written by amazing disability advocate, uh, Felissa Thompson, who is black and often will uh, talk about the intersectionality of being black and disabled. And um, this piece in particular stuck out to me as being really pertinent to this film and really Jim's through line here. So I want to take a second to really hone in on what is meant by appropriation in the disability community. 
And so this happens when we, within the disability community, uh, compare our struggles to those of other marginalized groups, particularly those of racial minorities. I really can't recommend Felissa's piece enough because she does such a fantastic job of not only explaining what appropriation looks like in this context, but um, you know, really gives some some great examples of of how this can look, and and really digs into why it's a problem because it's still something that we see within advocacy circles today and folks like her are really making sure that it's something that we're aware of and continue to work on. But I, I, I do think it's important to bring a couple of points here back to the film and you have a character of Jim who is a white male who in spite of his disability, still has a higher, I guess, prestige, ranking, however you want to define it, than Chris. He's still able to commandeer Chris's body as his own, and it speaks to how he values his experience over that of Chris's. And I think that that's kind of at the heart of what this piece by Velissa gets at. It, of course, underscores once again the fact that Jim is constantly wanting to separate himself from these groups of people that he feels are less than him because they're operating on these racist ideas and, and he's he's not about that, but yet he's still using a system that perpetuates that harm to meet his goal. And I, I feel like it's a, a really points of statement that Peel is kind of making about kind of these institutionalized structures that we always bump up against. And it's kind of a, a, a fuck you to the pity trope, I think, in a lot of ways as well. The pity trope being how individuals with disabilities, you know, we have to have pity on them. And there's certainly uh, an undercurrent of that with that first scene, right? Because it's all Jim talking about his his hardships, how he's not able to engage with his work and, you know, everything is dark and all of that. And now we get to see him just be, you know, his flagrant asshole self that even though he thinks that he's doing something mightier and more profound, he's just as awful as everyone else. I think I may have alluded to this, but another aspect of the interactions between Jim and Chris that puts a real point on all of this is the fact that Jim never really gives Chris an opportunity to talk. Chris never, you know, shares anything about himself or about his art, Jim effectively kind of shuts him down. Even back at their first interaction, you know, he says, I'm familiar with your art. My assistant has described it. And that's really all that's said. He never asks 
Chris any specific questions about his art, his work, his experience, um, anything. It's all about Jim. And even when he kind of opens up the opportunity for Chris to ask a question or to maybe perhaps take a little bit of lead in the conversation, it always turns back to Jim. Again, just prioritizing his voice, his experience above that of anyone else. Now, the last thing I, I kind of want to add, and, and this is a, a kind of an interesting thing. As part of my research for this, I went and listened to some interviews with Stephen Root. And so his last line in the film, in the sequence where he's addressing Chris through the video, is, okay, I'm done. And that was improv because they were trying to figure out a way to <laughs> effectively end the conversation for the character to be like, all right, that's all I have to say. And Stephen really kind of thought about it for a moment and thought that, you know, just saying I'm done was not only the effective way to end the conversation, which it does, but also kind of communicate that the character is done, that the character is kind of resigned his fate, that, you know, his body is now done with, that he's going through this procedure and he, as he was, is no longer going to exist. And I don't know. I love uh, doing that kind of research and going back and, and listening to some of these interviews and behind the scenes stuff because it's always interesting in, in some of these choices that are made. Overall, I find the character of Jim really interesting as this villainous character because outside of, you know, dissecting the ways that he truly is just this awful character, you also can appreciate the notes of internalized ableism and self-loathing that he has. Um, we don't understand kind of his whole journey with his disability. It's referenced a genetic disorder, but we don't know when it was diagnosed. We don't know how long he has been kind of living with, you know, the decreasing vision and, you know, any other kind of implications of the disability as well. Um, none of that's really hit on, but it's just, I think, a really compelling way to see how that internalized ableism and self-loathing can present itself in some pretty, pretty terrible ways. And so I, it just makes the, the villain character of Jim, uh, a much more fascinating watch. But having said all of that about Get Out, let's switch gears, shall we? And talk about Peel's follow-up film, 2019's Us. That's a classic right there. Messing with that, no I got five on it, man. 
It's about drugs. It's not about drugs. It's a dope song. Don't do drugs. Get in rhythm. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Can't believe how big Dave got. Did you hear Gabe got a boat? <laughs> He's kidding, right? He's not kidding. Hey, I think it's vodka clock. Oh, yeah. Where's Jason? Jason! Jason! Where were you? I didn't know if you were lost. Stick with me, and I'll keep you safe. There's a family in our driveway. It's probably the neighbors. But y'all scared of a family? Hi, can I help you? Zora, put your shoes on. If you want to get crazy, we can get crazy. What are you people? Natasha. They look exactly like us. They think like us. They know where we are. We need to move and keep moving. They won't stop until they kill us. So we kill them. Here's our plot synopsis for us. In 1986, a young girl named Adelaide, or Addie for short, watches a commercial for Hands Across America. At night, at the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk, she wanders away from her parents and enters a funhouse, where she encounters a doppelganger of herself in the House of Mirrors. Years later, the all-grown Addie goes on vacation with her husband, Gabe, and their children, Zora and Jason. She's apprehensive about the trip, haunted by memories of the encounter and her recovery, during which she stopped speaking and withdrew from her family. Despite her misgivings, the family meet with their friends Josh and Kitty Tyler and their twin daughters at the beach. On the way there, they witness paramedics taking away a body of an old man with blood on his chest. Jason later sees someone strangely similar to the old man, standing still with his arms outstretched and hands bloody. That night, Addie tells Gabe about her childhood accident, but she is stopped by a family of four dressed in red that appear in the driveway of the home before breaking into the house. Cornering the Wilsons in their own living room, the family is revealed as their doppelgangers. They include Pluto, Jason's fire-loving mouse-guard double, Umbre, Zora's sadistic double, and Abraham, Gabe's double, and they are led by Red, Addie's double, the only one who can speak, albeit in a guttural, raspy voice.
Red explains that they are called the Tethered, as they share a soul with their lookalike counterparts, and they have come to untether themselves. She tells them the story of a girl who lives a life of comfort and joy, while her shadow remains in the dark, suffering, while living a mere painful version of the girl's life and hating the girl for it. The Wilsons are separated and terrorized by their demented doppelgangers. Addie is handcuffed, and Jason discovers that Pluto mirrors his actions. After Gabe finally kills Abraham, the family gets on their boat together and find help. Meanwhile, the Tyler family is assaulted and murdered by their own doppelgangers at home. The Wilsons arrive and are assaulted as well, but they manage to eventually overpower and kill the Tyler's doubles. Realizing they aren't the only people with doppelgangers, they turn on the news to see that the Tethered have been murdering their equivalents across the U.S., and after doing so, are joining hands to form a massive human chain. The Wilsons decide to drive along the coast and escape to Mexico. While leaving, Umbre attacks the car and Zora kills her by sending her flying into a tree where she is impaled on a tree branch. Arriving at the boardwalk, the Wilsons find the townspeople already slaughtered. They also find the road blocked by a burning car. Jason, realizing it is a trap set by Pluto, orders everyone out of the car. Before Pluto can ignite the family's car, Jason backs away so that Pluto mirrors him and walks into the burning car. As Pluto dies, Red suddenly appears and snatches Jason. While Gabe recuperates from the wounds with Sora in an ambulance, Addie chases after Red to the funhouse where they first met. She finds a secret entrance that leads to an underground facility overrun by white rabbits, where she finds Red in a classroom. Red tells Addie that the Tethered are actually genetic clones created by the government to control the originals on the surface. When the experiment failed, the Tethered were abandoned underground for generations, mindlessly mimicking the actions of their counterparts and surviving on rabbit meat. After they realized that Red was different from the others, she organized them to escape and take vengeance by murdering their counterparts. Red and Addie begin to fight in the form of ballet, with Red gracefully evading and countering all of Addie's increasingly unbalanced attacks. When Addie allows Red to attack, she impels Red with a fireplace poker, then strangles her to death and breaks her neck before rescuing Jason from a locker. Jason also rescues one of the rabbits. While Addie uh, drives the family away in the ambulance, she suddenly remembers the terrifying night she first met Red in the Hall of Mirrors. It is revealed that the clone had choked Addie unconscious, damaging her larynx, making her voice raspy and guttural sounding, dragged her underground, handcuffed her there, and returned above ground to take Addie's place in her life, eventually learning to speak and adjusting as a human being. She is thus the tethered clone, and Red, who she just killed, was the real Addie. Jason looks suspiciously at his mother, who merely gives him a sly smile. The final aerial shot shows that the tethered have formed a human chain, replicating the Hands Across America demonstration stretching across the United States as helicopters hover over. 
admittedly, I wasn't for sure if I was going to cover us with Get Out because I think that the robust conversation around disability representation is going to be a little bit more limited within this film, but I still think that there's some important things to hit on. Where the focal point of Get Out was around issues of race, Us looks at issues of class. And I'll be touching on very lightly the kind of intersection of class and disability. But let's talk about Addie. And really we're talking about Addie slash Red. Red slash Addie. So one of the things that the plot synopsis hits on is the fact that after the attack in the funhouse, Addie returns to her parents nonverbal because she's not Addie. She's Red. And the tethered are nonverbal in communication. So her family, thinking that she is probably dealing with PTSD, um, end up getting her some therapy. And we get a couple of scenes of the parents talking to the therapist and adding in the room, um, I think drawing or sketching. And I love the inclusion of the scenes because without kind of the reveal at the end, they are interesting scenes, but they don't really do a whole lot with the story outside of just pinpointing that, you know, what happened to her was very traumatic and underscoring what, uh, you know, Addie is kind of explaining to Gabe when she tells him what happened to her as a kid. And so... I, I, it's a really great thing to kind of go back um, once the ending reveal occurs that you understand that this is actually where she was learning these communication skills. Um, So um, I also think it's kind of a a cool way to normalize getting children therapy interventions, whether it be for something related to mental health, whether it be something to uh, assist with any kind of developmental delays, anything. Um, I like that that was kind of the parent's approach. It wasn't just toughen up, uh, get over it. It was, we need to get her therapy. We need to get her some professional help. So I, I, you know, just kind of as a, a side component to that, I really liked that the film didn't shy away from that and really normalized it. Now things kind of evolve once we meet our tethered. And for clarification purposes here, I will kind of issue a disclaimer that when I'm referring to Addie, I'm referring to kind of the Addie that we we recognize as Addie through the bulk of the film, the character that we, we think is Addie throughout the bulk of the film, and Red being the tethered. Um, person that is a part of the attack just to kind of make sure that it's simple because being that we're dealing with body swapping essentially it can get really confusing so that's to kind of clarify that but when the tethered arrive again 
we have these home invaders that are nonverbal and it is Jason that instantly recognizes them as being kind of a form of themselves as being a representation of the family. And this is when we first hear Red speak. And as was mentioned, she has a very affected and very specific way of communicating. And I'm going to get into that uh, here in, in just a bit, because that's really kind of the bulk of what I want to talk about with us. Um, but again, it's underscoring the fact that she's the unique one. She's able to verbalize where no one else in the family is. And so she's the one that's communicating specifically to Addie, um, you know, and telling the story and kind of explaining, uh, who they are and what they are. One of the things that stuck out to me about this speech especially in subsequent watches, because I think the first time that you watch this movie, you're really just trying to kind of put all of the pieces together. And I'll admit, I kind of saw the, the, the aspect of the body swapping uh, pretty early in the film, just because whenever you're dealing with a doppelganger situation, that's always on the fucking table. And so that was always kind of in the back of my mind. I just, you know, obviously didn't know how it was going to exactly play out. But, um, when Red is giving her speech, you know, she's explaining or kind of describing her, her family in really monstrous ways. She talks about, you know, giving birth as this horrific event. And she describes her children as being monstrous and to me that really stuck out especially in subsequent watches and the most recent um viewing as kind of being that that sign that there's something different about her that she's um looking at these individuals that she's supposed to be a part of that she's part of this family that they're all together as different somehow from her uh, because she never describes herself that way. Now, as I mentioned previously, Us is a film that's seen through the lens of class. This is really kind of the topic, the issue that I think Jordan Peele is uh, really putting at the forefront. And this is highlighted by the inclusion of Hands Across America. So, what is Hands Across America? What was Hands Across America? Well, it was a campaign, a fundraising event in May of 86, where everyone was to come together and clasp hands across America to raise awareness for poverty and hunger. And individuals were encouraged to, I think, donate $10 to reserve their space in line for this. And I think maybe five to seven million individuals ended up participating. And one of the reasons that, I'll, particularly Hands Across America, got a lot of flack was 
it didn't really do anything. People know that issues are happening, but what are we, what, what do campaigns like this actually do to help uh, raise awareness and combat the issue in useful ways? Putting this in context of the film, this had to be a message that a young Addie somehow absorbed because the tethered that she is leading are just coming up to clasp pans and sing Kumbaya. She's coming for some real change by taking out the people that she sees as causing harm to, you know, get themselves out from the underground. But the villains here are not the tethered or the untethered. It is the government that put this experiment in place and left these clones to basically wither and to have no resources, no support. This is where we start to get a more kind of high-level connect to disability and kind of its intersection with poverty. To put this as succinctly as possible, and I think this is something I focused in on a bit more in the episode on The Purge from what feels like eight years ago, but really wasn't, is the fact that individuals with disabilities experience poverty at a much higher rate than those that are not disabled. And there's a lot of different factors around that. But one of the sticking issues here are the government-supported programs designed to help those in need. I think us does a good job at really pinpointing how we talk about issues that we want to find solutions for, but instead of sitting down and figuring out what those solutions can look like and how they can be sustainable and impactful to a population, we would instead like to spend 15 minutes clasping hands and then considering our work done, especially those that aren't directly impacted by the issue at hand, hand pun, I guess, somewhat intended. Now, this may seem slightly contradictory to what I just said, where the real villain are the government entities, but it's the government's inability to act, it's the poor messaging around issues, and a divisive nature that these issues are approached with that often feed into these lack of solutions. All right, deep breath because I don't want this to become Nicole's uh, social political rant space. I want to now talk about Red's voice and the controversy around that and its direct connection to kind of disability representation because I think it's really interesting and I always think it's kind of uh, an interesting thing to bring up when a film does garner a little bit of notice and controversy around representation. When the film was being released, Lupita Nyong'o, who plays Red and Addie, was talking about the character of Red and her inspiration for the voice that she uses because the voice is very distinctive. And she referenced specifically a condition called spasmodic dysphonia as something that she studied. 
and it is a voice disorder of uh, kind of involuntary spasms in the muscles of the voice box or larynx. And this causes the voice to break and have a really tight or kind of strangled, muffled type sound. Specifically, Lupita would reference Robert F. Kennedy Jr., someone with spasmodic dysphonia uh, as a reference point and would talk about how she studied his speeches as part of her process in developing the voice for Red. Lupita did get a fair bit of heat for this. A lot of people were upset about the portrayal and use of a very specific disability in this context because, hey, why you have to make this condition creepy? Because that was kind of how it was being framed, is that she simply adopted this specific disability because it sounded creepy and weird. And no one wants their medical condition to be associated with creepy or weird. But it wasn't just folks online talking about this and bringing up these topics, but even folks within the disability community and specifically uh, Kimberly Kuman, the executive director at the time of the National Spasmodic uh, Dysphonia Association, uh, made a comment about it. And her comment was, I think the biggest challenge is that it's being associated with terms creepy and haunting. And the reality is once the movie is over, there are still uh, folks living with this voice disorder. Now, if this is making any of the nerve endings in your brain fire a certain way, this goes back to what we were talking about with appropriation when talking about get out. What Lupita is talking about specifically here, though, is appropriation in the terms of being able to take an aspect of a disability and slip it on and off at leisure and not really having to deal with any of the actual elements of the disability and what it's like to live with that disability. And I think that's why uh, Kuman's statement about, you know, after this movie ends, there are real people living with this very real condition. And this minimizes that experience in a really specific way. I think this is also heightened by the fact that this is a rare condition that a lot of people aren't aware of, aren't familiar with, and so I think there's a disconnect in kind of that aspect of understanding. Lupita would go on to apologize and would mention that specifically as well. You know, understanding that this is a small group and I didn't want to uh, offend anyone. That wasn't my intent. And I really wanted to create this character. Um, I think she specifically says, you know, that she wanted to, she really wanted to ground her in something that felt real. And well, this is a real condition. So I kind of understand that aspect, but she did seem to kind of understand where the pushback was coming from. And I, I respect that and, you know, again, not my apology to accept, but 
I, I think that you know she came from an earnest place of saying, I didn't mean to offend. I didn't really understand kind of the whole gravity of, you know, taking this particular approach to this voice and I'm sorry. So basically what it boils down to is the experience of individuals with disabilities or any one that is part of a marginalized community should never be used as shorthand. At its worst, it can have some really, really atrocious impacts in the day-to-day -day life of those individuals. And I mean, at its best, it just rings as inauthentic. Now, I should point out that the issue has really nothing to do with the actual voice or the performance associated. It's just the connection to the actual disability when it's completely unnecessary. Red speaks like this because she was Addie that was choked by actual Red as a child, which caused the damage. And being a tethered, she didn't have access to the therapy that her now above ground uh, version had access to. So there were a lot of different approaches that could have, uh, I think, made this come off a lot different. So I, I have to put that in there because I still really love this movie. I think the I, I think Lupita is astonishing in the role. It's unfortunately just a specific correlation to a very real disability. Oh, well, we, we've covered a lot of heavy topics, I think, in this episode. And I, I'm definitely feeling it in my, in my head and in my bones right now. So I think this might be a good note to, to end on. I, I hope that, you know, tackling two films and, and digging into some of these more broader issues and connecting them to disability has been something that has been at least interesting to listen to. I know I really love both of these films a lot and it's something that really makes them powerful watches for me. So, you know, I hope that if you go back and, and watch these movies again uh, soon, that you may be able to kind of maybe pick uh, one or two things out that maybe you didn't catch before or think about uh, a, a different scene or a, a different moment, um, perhaps with a different kind of uh, lens. As always, thank you so much for listening. I know I say it every week, but I do truly struggle with how to put in towards how grateful I am that anyone listens to someone talk for an hour about some movies and disability. It just means so, 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 so much. And I really can't find the appropriate ways to express my gratitude. So, you know, just my, my always add in of thank you will have to suffice. If you want to keep listening, and I hope that you will, please make sure that you are subscribed to the Anatomy of a Scream 
feed wherever you get your podcasts. Not only is it the home of Bodies of Horror, but lots of other great, great content there. I am forever grateful to the amazing, amazing individuals behind Anatomy of the Scream and just feel really honored to be among the people putting out content on the Anatomy of the Scream feed. So please make sure that you support by subscribing and if you want to rate, review, that's always extremely helpful in letting folks find not just Bodies of Horror, but all the other amazing shows on the feed as well. If you want to reach out to me, please do. I love hearing from folks. And you can do that by sending me an email at bodiesofhorror at gmail.com. Until next time, friends. Scream Pod Squad.